Welcome to Women in Venture Capital. I'm Rushvina, Chief of Staff at General Catalyst, with prior experience in finance and early stage VC. And I'm Anvita, Senior Product Manager at UiPath with experiences across tech startups and venture capital. Our mission at Women in Venture Capital is simple. Increase the representation of women in the VC industry through awareness and engagement. So join us as we engage with women establishing their presence in the industry. Our guest today is Melissa Marks. Melissa is a trusted legal advisor to companies and investors across the innovation ecosystem. She's a partner at Gunderson Detmer's New York office and a member of the firm's corporate and securities practice group. She previously served as general counsel of Boxy, a streaming media hardware and software company acquired by Samsung. Melissa has over 15 years of experience leading transactions at all stages of the tech life cycle. She is committed to fostering diversity, equity, and inclusion in the broader tech and VC community. And a majority of her clients are led by underrepresented founders or execs. She currently serves on the firm's DNI committee as well as its management committee, aka the board of directors. Melissa, it's such a pleasure to have you on. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm really looking forward to the discussion. Awesome. So jumping right in, can you share a little bit your journey of exploring the VC world as a lawyer? In the same vein, can you shed some light on an attorney's role in the VC cap uh, venture capital ecosystem? Like I told you before we started the podcast, um, we very rarely have had lawyers on the on the show so i think the legal perspective is a really important one so looking forward to hearing a little bit more about your journey wonderful uh let me start off by giving a little bit of context then so i graduated law school in 2006 um to situate that a little bit obviously it's between the bubble burst and the great recession and I think the big tech deal of that year was uh, Google acquiring YouTube for you know a little more than a, a billion and a half dollars, and that was you know, massive at that time. So that's the environment where I started my legal practice, and I actually did not start off in venture. I started off at a Wall Street law firm doing capital markets and securities work. I had the opportunity to work on the IPO of VMware when EMC was spinning them off to the public. And that's where I got the bug for working in tech and VC. And so I moved law firms as a young lawyer about a year later. And that's when I came to Gunderson uh, and really started to learn what the venture marketplace was all about. The other thing that I think is really relevant is that my entire career as a venture lawyer has been in New York. So Gunderson as a law firm was originally based in Silicon Valley and I spent a good amount of time there, but I am entirely you know, steeped in the New York venture ecosystem uh, which is, you know, for many years, I would say was a bit behind Silicon Valley as far as value of uh, investments, value of exits, number of 
VC firms and portfolio companies based here. It's obviously very robust now, but that's kind of the, the sphere of experience that I have. And as for what a lawyer does in the VC ecosystem, I think there's a couple answers to this. So the very literal answer is, you know, we negotiate transactions on behalf of investors and on behalf of portfolio companies. So basically get deals done. <laughs> exactly. We do deals. Um, on the investor side for VCs, we negotiate when funds are fundraising. So we actually write the limited partnership agreement of the fund. We write the general partnership fund or uh, entity agreement. We negotiate side letters with LPs when they are uh, investing in a fund. Then once the fund is raised, we do deals when the VCs are deploying capital. And so what that would typically look like is a, you know, someone on the investment team would come to me and say, we're planning to put out a term sheet for such and such company. Here are the high level terms. You know, can you help me write the term sheet? I would suss out any terms that were not given in that high level bullet point. Usually when an investor comes to me, they know what valuation they want to offer. They know how much of the company they want to hold at that valuation. But the legal rights that come along with those uh, with the investment are a big part of what I help to flesh out. Um, and then I also, you know, would represent that fund throughout that whole investment. But if there's follow on investments or when the company exits, I can represent the VC's interest in the exit. And the third portion of what we do is actually not on the same transaction, but we also represent portfolio companies as their outside corporate counsel. And that can be formation all the way up through exit, through rounds of financing, essentially acting as outside general counsel. Um, so that that's the very literal answer of what we do is we negotiate deals. I think what is most interesting and what I find most fulfilling though is being a lawyer in this sector we really have the opportunity to act as thought partners to our clients. Um, and so lots of early high level conversations about structuring transactions or if a situation is arising at a portfolio company, getting ahead and having discussions about, you know, what options might be available to a VC partner who serves on the board of directors of that company? What are their obligations? Um, you know, I, I think my personal superpower, um, as I like to think about it, is I spent many years really struggling with, with very severe anxiety. And during that period of my life, I played the role of observer quite a bit. And I think from that experience, 
I am able to listen to a conversation and really hear what's not being said and then offer that perspective. So I like to be able to offer that judgment, offer that unique perspective. And it's not always just legal advice, right? Sometimes it's about recognizing the personalities around the board table and the best way to broach a, a particular suggestion. Right. Um, yes. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. And thank you for sharing such a great overview of um, the legal aspect of venture capital firms. Moving into your experience a little bit more, um, in one of your public statements, you mentioned and encouraged people to seize the opportunity to get some relevant experience while still in law school, whether through an internship or a transactional clinic or taking a venture law course or interning at a startup over the summer or the semester. Can you share why you believe that's a really important step and how you worked your way with it? I'd be happy to. And in many ways, this is a piece of advice that comes out of what I was not able to do and wish that I had been. So law school, to contrast with, for example, business school, does not offer historically a ton of opportunity for hands-on practical experience along the lines of what lawyers do once they graduate and are actually out in the field, so to speak. Law school has traditionally been very academic, right? You think about movies where you see the Socratic method and the teacher in front of the, or the professor in front of a big lecture hall kind of asking these tricky questions back and forth to the law students. And so when I was in law school, for example, the there were a handful of what we called clinics offered, and they were still very litigation focused. You could work on a clinic where you might help with some family law cases, for example, but there were very few examples or opportunities to be able to understand what it would be like to be a deal lawyer. And I think zero at that time of what it would be like to be a deal lawyer in the venture space. Happily, that is not the case anymore. I think almost every top law school offers some sort of entrepreneurship clinic or at the very least some other corporate clinic where you are helping to advise clients who are small business owners, for example, on transactions that they're looking to get done. And I just wish I had had that opportunity when I was a law student to really understand what was out there for me post-graduation. I feel very personally fortunate to have ended up as a partner at Gunderson and to have found my way into this career. But for me, it was a lot of chance of trial and error and realizing, you know, what at my first law firm, what I loved about the job. I loved deal work. I loved being exposed to interesting deals, particularly in the tech space. That guided me to move to Gunderson, where I learned that I, you know, really enjoyed having very close relationships with young companies and directly with investment team members at funds. 
Uh, and that led me to go in-house as general counsel of a startup for a few years. And so it was little by little that I realized where I wanted to be for the duration of my career. Right. And it's been great for me. But had I had that opportunity to understand that this position even existed while I was a law student, I think I could have built up skills that much faster. It's really interesting, right? Um, even from an investor perspective, going into VC, you are encouraged to do a lot of these internships to try to get as much practical um, experience as possible to be a VC before you join a VC to really understand the mindset of what it means to be part of, a, of the industry. So it's really interesting to hear that that kind of experience can also be really valuable from the legal side of things. Um, thanks for sharing that. And, you know, I want to talk a little bit more about your career. Um, you've been doing this for a bit. And what have been some of your highlights and also lowlights navigating the VC ecosystem in this capacity? That's a great question. As far as highlights, you know, I think closing a big deal is always fantastic. I think getting to work with a exciting new company. I mean, one, I'm currently working with a very exciting AI company, a company that's building a foundational model for a specific, uh, a specific field. They are still in stealth, so I can't say more than that, but it's really thrilling to be at the forefront of these types of developing technologies. But overall, I would say for me, I'm not a spotlight seeker. And so while those big deals are really high profile clients are fantastic, the things I carry with me the most are the small moments. Uh, you mentioned in the intro, I'm very proud of the fact that half of my client base is led by women or other underrepresented founders or executives. And I hear so often from those clients you know, I want to ask you this question. I never would have asked this of my prior counsel, but I feel like I can ask this of you. Or, you know, the thanks for shedding light on something, or most importantly, I think, letting a founder or even sometimes a VC know that they weren't, they were being gaslit, I think is one way to say it. There are asks that I see made of, women and particularly women of color, other upper underrepresented uh, founders and funders in the space that I, I just don't see with nearly the same frequency uh, for white men. And so being able to validate for my clients that you're not crazy, <laughs> it isn't this hard for every single founder mm -hmm. and being able to, you know, give that advice based on my experience as to what is reasonable to agree to, what is not a typical ask. Those are the things that really carry me through my career and that I'm most proud of. Thank as you. Far as, oh. I was going to say, and maybe this is me extrapolating, but I have a feeling some of the lowlights might be related to the different experiences that you were talking about founders of color might have to navigate or, um, but yeah, I definitely want to hear more of the lowlights. 
Absolutely. I mean, I think one low light is actually evolving right now, the lawsuit against Fearless Fund. Um, that that really hit me hard when that suit yep. was brought. And for anyone who is unfamiliar, Fearless Fund is an Atlanta-based firm, uh, a Black female-founded venture firm that is an impact fund and also has uh, a uh, an, an element of just making grants to certain Black founders, and they are currently being challenged as uh, that being a discriminatory practice. And so, you know, when when less than half a percent of VC dollars are going to Black women to begin with, to then have Black women be targeted as perpetuating discrimination as opposed to being victims of systemic discrimination is it's really hit very close to home and like many, you know, many in VC generally and, and, you know, in the broader DNI. Not the sector. best for the industry for sure. Yeah. We're, we're going to be watching this very closely. Um, I know I'm, I take comfort in the fact that, you know, so many other impact investors have said, we will not be discouraged by this, but you know, there, there's been progress over my career, but it is a marathon. And, you know, these these setbacks do hit hard. Definitely. And um, I mean, I agree with whatever you said, right? It's it's really interesting when these even come up and an industry that's supposedly full of really smart people don't understand that in order to tackle systemic issues, um, you kind of need to implement this 100% focus on everybody who's been underrepresented. Um, and yeah, so we'll see what happens there. Um, it's always eye-opening to realize that there are people who still think that way. Um, and there are many of them. So, you know, we keep, we keep the work going. Um, and this actually transitions into my next question quite a bit. Um, you talked about, you know, um, people of color, you talked about women. So I want to ask more about your personal experience um, with the gender dynamics in the VC world. What has been some of your experiences with that? So it's very interesting to take a step back and think about what is different now than when I began my career. One of the things I have the opportunity to do as a lawyer in VC is to attend board meetings of portfolio companies. So when I'm counsel to a company, I attend their board meeting. I get to sit in that room and hear management present to the board. I get to hear the questions that the directors who represent VC funds have for management, hear that discussion. Um, when I began, I was very, very frequently the only woman in any of those board meetings. The VC directors were male, the founders were almost always male. Sometimes there would be 
a C-level often in marketing um, or, or a VP people who would join part of the meeting, but I was very conscious of frequently being alone. Uh, and there were, you know, no terrible behavior, but lots of what I would call lightly offensive jokes being made and, and the comment that, you know, myself and my peers would always joke about afterwards because we heard this constantly would be like, haha, don't put that in the minutes, you know? <laughs> and uh, so that that's a experience that was typical for me 10, 10 plus years ago. These days, it is rare if I am the only woman at a board meeting, very rare. And so that's one of the things that I, you know, count as a win. And, and when I talk about this struggle to, you know, slowly gain more equality in VC, more representation, more inclusion, that's one of the things that I like to look at and realize, yes, there has been a market change and the tone of discussion in boardrooms changes quite a bit as well, just based on that representation. Um, I think on the flip side, I do still see the dynamic between female founders and non-female board members is often still very different than female founders and female board members or, you know, uh, when they're male founders and, and male directors, I do see that idea of just having to be triple prepared that a, a CEO or a founder who's leading a board meeting who is a woman will, in my experience, get pushed much harder by outside directors to back up every statement, have every fact and figure at her fingertips, have an answer for everything um, in a way that I just don't observe as much in those other situations. And, you know, I'm obviously very sensitive to this and, and it is anecdotal experience, but, you know, while there is a lot of positive change, I, it is still harder for women, whether on the VC side or the founder side, um, on average. Absolutely. And um, like you said, I think the marathon is a really good um, analogy for this. Very much is an ongoing battle. I mean, you mentioned um, the fearless fund. That's just an example of, you know, three steps forwards, um, two steps backwards kind of situation. So we really hope that, you know, the conversation, like you said, I also feel has changed quite a bit, whether it's with hiring or investments, but um, let's hope for more of those positive changes going forward. Um, Melissa, this has been really great. I really appreciate you for being so candid with your experiences and your thoughts around um, diversity in VC and sharing so much about being a lawyer in the VC ecosystem. My final question for you is something we ask all of our guests, but what advice would you have for aspiring female investors or women who are trying to break into VC as lawyers um, and who might be thinking about you know, making an industry switch or, um, yeah, whatever advice you, you, you have to offer them. I think, so two things come to mind. I think 
for both women in VC as investors, as well as those who might be interested in being lawyers or in other more ancillary roles, I would say build your networks very broadly. We, at least my generation of women, really were not taught to network the way men were. And one thing that I have come to appreciate over the duration of my career is that while having a go to the mat for you sponsor or mentor is immensely valuable, over the term of a career, you know, we don't know what's going to evolve and just making sure to really make connections wherever you can particularly amongst women. I think it's so wonderful how much deal sharing and such I see amongst women VCs. Um, But having those really broad networks is equally as valuable and it's sometimes more valuable than having that one person who's really going to pound the table and tell everybody how wonderful you are, because there's only so much that one person can do, especially if that one person is a woman or a person of color who probably is trying to bring many people up behind them by virtue of, you know, being a uh, representing a, a smaller population uh, in the in the field to begin with. So that's something that I would really say is, you know, you cannot have too many connections. Don't forget about your peers. You don't need to get advice or build connections only with people who are already at the top of their career. You can learn so much and get so much support for peers who are coming up with you. Uh, And that's been something that's been very valuable in my career. And if there's time for one more piece of advice, The other thing I would say is trust yourself. There will be times of discouragement. We've talked a lot about, you know, systemic factors. And if you are feeling like it is harder for you as a woman, as a woman of color, it's because it is. I'm not saying this to bum anyone out, but I find for me personally, It's so much easier to embark on a journey expecting that there will be some setbacks setbacks, than to enter it from that point of view of the lifelong overachiever and to suddenly, you know, run full steam into a brick wall and find myself being very discouraged by that setback or by it being, you know, seemingly unfairly easier for someone else to get ahead. And so, you know, there are still obstacles for us. And I think being aware of them and planning for them and having these support systems and networks to help you through them can uh, be one way to turn that potential negative into a positive as opposed to something that becomes discouraging. Absolutely. I think this is some amazing advice. Melissa, thank you again so much for joining us today on the podcast. 
thank you so much. It's been wonderful chatting with you.